Chapter 7 of In Seven Stages, A Flying Trip Around the World by Elizabeth Bisland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Holly Jensen. Chapter 7, Seventh Stage. At Ceylon, the Australian mail ship Britannia waits for us. She is one of the enormous peninsular and oriental vessels built in the jubilee year and is on her way home to England. Here again farewells to the dear little old lady from Boston and to my kind and charming friend the Salon Tea Planter, who has placed me under an endless debt of gratitude by his many courtesies. It is four o'clock in the afternoon of the 1st of January when we swing out of the harbor and direct our course towards Africa. The height of luxury is achieved on these peninsular and oriental steamships. No steerage travel being provided for, space is not stinted to first-class passengers, and saloons, decks, and bedrooms are ample and handsome. The ship's company, Australians on their way home to England have made themselves thoroughly at home for the six weeks cruise. Their rooms they have hung with photographs and drapery and bits of bric-a-brac, and on deck each one has a long bamboo lounging chair, a little table, and a tea service for that beautiful ceremony of five o'clock tea all being made possible by the fact that the sea is smooth as glass and the decks level as a drawing-room floor. Courtesies are exchanged in the form of invitations to this afternoon tea. Three times a week, the band plays for dancing on deck. Tableau, private theatricals, and fancy balls fill the evenings, and in the afternoons the after part of the ship is lively with games of cricket. The principal personage on board is Miss Ethel Roma Detmold, aged two and a half years, and familiarly known as Baby Detmold. There are other infants aboard, but merely the common or garden baby, not to be mentioned with this blue and gold girl child who sparkles out upon us a morning vision in a white frock and an enigmatic smile. The entire male force of the ship is her slave, and trailing about after her, humbly suing for favors she is most chary in granting, she possessing already the secret of power over her kind, in an airy joyous indifference to anyone's attentions and services, which we therefore, with the curious perversity of human nature, persist in thrusting upon her. All women are not born free and equal. There is some subtle force in this tiny turquoise-eyed coquette which will secure for her without effort her life through devotion other women may not win with endless sacrifices or oceans of tears. Even the cook's pet chicken, who flies from everyone else, allows himself to be hauled about by one leg or squeezed violently to her youthful bosom and, far from protesting, looks foolishly flattered by the notice of this imperious cherub. Always, above and below us, it is intensely blue, hot, and calm. Flights of film-winged fishes rise from our path and flit away like flocks of sea sparrows. Sometimes a whale blows up a column of shining spray and leaves a green wake to show his hidden path, but nothing marks the passing of the hours save the coming and going of light. 
when the azure blossom of the day dies in irised splendors rosy clouds float up over the horizon's edge like wandering fairy islands drifting at will in a golden world vanishing when the moon appears magical white nights of ineffable stillness and purity fade into the blaze of daffodil dawns time goes by in lotus dreams that have no memory of a past or reckoning of a future till we wake suddenly and find anchor cast in the gulf of aden red barren masses of stone broken and jagged like an old lion's cheek teeth an astonishing aridity everywhere all the more startling by contrast with the fierce verdure of the lands we have last seen not a drop of rain has fallen here in three years and no green thing lives in the place even the tawny hills rot and fall to dust in the terrible desiccation the earth is an impalpable dun powder that no roots could grasp the rocks are seamed cracked and withered to the heart the dust and bones of a dead land is a coaling station and harbor from which warships may guard the entrance of the red sea aden is valuable and therefore like hong kong singapore penang ceylon like everything much worth having in this part of the world it is an english possession there are wharves of heavy masonry the governor's residence a verandahed bungalow shut in with green persiennes standing on a little eminence some distance back from the water and one narrow street of heavy white stone houses with flat roofs fringing the shore a carriage is hired to convey us to the tanks the only bit of sightseeing to be done at aden these tanks are of unknown antiquity and are variously attributed to solomon the queen of sheba the arabs and as a last guess to the phoenicians historians when in doubt always accuse the phoenicians in this rainless region where water falls only at intervals of years it was necessary to collect and preserve it all and some one built among the hills huge stone basins with capacity of hundreds of thousands of gallons these basins are quite perfect still though the name of the faithful builder thereof has long ago perished the road winds upward from the sea to a barrier of rocks and pierces them with a black echoing pass two hundred feet high and fifteen wide where the english fortifications lie a place to be held by twenty men against an army here we find tommy atkins again still clad in white linen from top to toe and still rosily swaggering on the other side of the wall of hills is the town a motley assemblage of more flat-topped stone dwellings all lime-washed as white as snow in the midst is a well where women in flowing drapery with tall jars draw water as if posing for bible illustrations and a camel market in which fifty or more of the brown ungainly beasts have been relieved of their burdens and lain down for the night doubled into uncomfortable heaps and bubbling and moaning with querulous discontent we rattle through the silent dusty town and find beyond it a garden where a dozen feeble trees have by constant watering been induced to grow as high as our heads but appear discouraged and drooping and ready to give up the effort at any moment behind these are the irregular bowls of masonry set in the clefts at the foot of the rocks 
and stretching enormous thirsty mouths open to the arid hills and rainless sky they are terraced down the sides steps by which the retreating water can be followed but happily the place is independent of them now with a condensing engine and the inexhaustible supply of the sea night is coming on there is a crystalline luminosity in this dray air that the vanished sun leaves faintly golden green every fold and crevice of the red rock wall overflows with intense violet shadows that are still full of light there is no evening mistiness of vision the little flat white town the shore the turbaned figures moving to and fro in the streets the ships afloat on the glassy sea the tawny outline of the rocks all standing out with keen clearness through the deepening of the twilight so might have looked some syrian evening of long ago and as if to answer the thought there slowly lifts itself above the crest of the hills in the green dusk a huge white planet the star in the east the dusk has vanished when we reach the wharf at one stride comes the dark and suddenly in an instant innumerable glittering hosts rush into the heavens with a wild astonishing splendor startling as the blare of trumpets unimaginable myriads unreckonable millions and as our oars dip the water answers with equal multitudes of wan sea stars that whirl and wimple through the flood later when the silver fire of a full moon by whose light one can read and see colors has swallowed up this glittering pageant we go again to the tanks passing on the route a loaded train of camels lurching away to the desert through the black shadows of the pass and stepping beside them lean swarthy arabs draped statelily in white such a caravan as might have gone down into egypt to buy corn from pharaoh four thousand years ago nothing in the interval changed in any way our footsteps and our voices echo in hollow whispers from the empty tanks and the mysterious shadows of the hills though we walk lightly and speak softly awed by the vast calm radiance of the african night other than this it is very silent in this dead and desert spot not a leaf to rustle not an insect to cry and even the sea has no speech the world grows dreamlike and unreal in the white silence we should feel no surprise to come suddenly among the rocks upon a gaunt hebrew with wild eyes clothed in skins and wrestling in the desert with the old unsolvable riddles of existence a prophet whose scorching words should wither away in one terrible instant all the falsities and frivolities of our lives leaving us gaping aghast in the awful visage of truth nor should we start to hear the thin high voice of a wandering lad with the shadow of a crown above his brow who should come chanting psalms of longing for green pastures and still waters it is a night and a place for such things as these the town beyond which shines the silver sea is white as pearls in the moonlight with here and there a yellow gleam from a lamp through an open door the population is gathered in the square playing dominoes and games of chance at little tables and drinking coffee liquor being forbidden to these mahometans 
bearded arabs with delicate features and grave sad eyes who fold their white burnooses about them with a wonderful effect of dignity and more jovial and half-naked negroes of every tint and race from zanzibar the sudan abyssinia the sudanese are fine stalwart animals fighting men all stripped to the waist shining like polished ebony with beardless mouths full of ivory teeth and long wool combed straight out and vividly red made so by being plastered down for a week under a coat of lime egypt and england know well how these men fight yet when i lean forward and take into my hand the little case of camel skin containing verses from the koran hanging on the muscular black breast of one of these gigantic africans he laughs the same mellow amiable laugh i should hear from a negro at home on the plantation did i show a like familiarity and interest our way home lies through a reverberant tunnel beneath the fort where we meet more camels still with that same lounging stride still with that air of evangelical superiority to a wicked world and still making with closed mouths those suppressed moans of wounded feeling the port is fast asleep in the distance a man-of-war is slowly steaming out of the harbor on its way to the lower coast to overawe the portuguese making futile protests against english domination in the neighborhood of delagoa bay quite in a moment it seems it is tomorrow our last day in the tropics and i go up on deck before the sun has risen into the delicious moist warmth of the equatorial morning a man a young man is lounging in one of the bamboo chairs in a negligee of india silk drinking a tiny cup of coffee and enjoying the early freshness no one else is visible i hesitate a moment conscious of the dishevelment of locks beneath the lace scarf tied under my chin but think better of the hesitation and remain i may never see this again this world where one is really for the first time lord of the senses five where the light of night and of day have a new meaning where one is drenched and steeped in color and perfume where the husk of callous dullness falls away and every sense replies to impressions with a keenness as of newborn faculties the young man's silky black head is ruffled too and his yellow eyes still sleepy as he comes and leans over the rail he is holding a little black pipe in a slim olive hand that is tipped with deep-tinted onyx-like nails and with it he points to the first canoe putting out from the shore it is a long brown boat very narrow and filled with oranges heaped up in the center it is cutting a delicate furrow along the pearly lilac of the glass-like sea a faint gray mist scarcely more than a film lies along the shore above it the red rocks stand up sharply against the white sky which the coming sun is changing to gold the young man turns and smiles showing a row of white teeth through lips as red as pomegranate flowers he is english but takes on here certain warm tones of color like a spaniard every moment i have spent in the tropics is to me just as vivid as this i see everything not a beauty not a touch of color escapes me every moment of the day means intense delight beauty life and now after six months not a line has faded or grown dim 
I can live back in it in every emotion, every impression, as though not an hour divided me from it. It is well to have thus once really lived. The deck swarms with native merchants selling ostrich feathers, grass mats, and baskets from Zanzibar, ornaments of shells, boxes of Turkish delight, embroideries, photographs, and a three-months-old lion cub in a wooden cage. The Bombay Mail, for which we waited, has arrived, and new passengers come ashore with mountains of luggage. Among them is a man with a heavy, smooth pink face, an overhanging upper lip, and long white hair. It is Bradlaugh, the famous atheist, who fought the whole House of Commons and forced it to admit him without taking the oath. He proves to be a jovial person, with an astounding ingenuity in misplacing H's, and an amusing little way of confiding small details concerning himself with an air of expecting you to snatch out a notebook and jot them down as one who should later make an article for one of the reviews. Some confidential talks with Charles Bradlaugh, M.P., he is returning from India where he has been attending a congress of natives agitating for a representative government. His colleague, Sir William Wedderburn, returns with him, a Scotch baronet, a gentle enthusiast and theoretical radical, whose heart is overflowing with vague tenderness for all mankind. There is some stir among us because Mr. Stanley has just arrived on the coast from the interior of Africa, and there is talk of his going home in our ship but the government sends down a special convoy to take him to Egypt, and we steam away without him. A cold west wind meets us in the Red Sea. The passengers get out their furs, and there is no more lounging on deck. One must walk briskly or sit in the sun wrapped in rugs. I wake one night, missing the throbbings of the screw, and find that we are going at a snail's pace in smooth water. The moon is very dim behind the clouds, and from the porthole it would appear that we are sailing across endless expanses of sand. Nothing else is to be seen. Morning shows a narrow ditch in a desert, half full of green water, so narrow and so shallow, apparently, that nothing would convince us our great ship could pass through, save the actual proof of its doing so. At one of the wider parts made for this purpose, we pass a French troop ship, which dips her colors and sends a ringing cheer from the throats of the red-trousered soldiers on their way to Tonkin. Later, a dead Arab floats by in the green water, but is regarded with indifference as a common episode and merely suggestive of an imprudent quarrel overnight. Nothing is to be seen save stones and sand to the very horizon. A dim and lurid sunset ends the day, and when night comes, we are anchored off the town of Port Said, a wretched little place, dusty, dirty, and flaring with cheap vice, all the flotsam of four nations whirling about in an eddy of coarse pleasures. The shopkeepers are wolfish-looking and bargain vociferously. Almost every other door opens into a gambling hall and concert hall. One of these gambling places boasts an opera. At the table stand amid the crowd two handsome young Germans, blonde, but with none of the ruddy warmth of the English blonde, pale and flaxen, with deep blue eyes and haughty of manner, not nice faces, high-bred, but cold and brutal, 
they are officers from prince henry of prussia's ship the irene lying now in the harbor in the concert hall traviata is being sung by a fourth-rate french troupe and the audience sit about at little tables drinking and eating ices i ask for something native turkish to drink and they bring me a stuff that to all the evidences of sight taste and smell cries out that it is a mixture of paragoric and water and one sip contents me we are glad to go away the mediterranean is cold and not smooth but here there comes upon one a sense of historical association in india nature is so tremendous she swallows up all memory of man in aden one remembers only the bible but nearing greece the past takes shape and meaning and history begins to have a new vividness and significance here man has been lord of the visible earth has dominated and adorned her she has been but the stage and background against which he played out the tragedies and comedies of humanity one morning at sunrise the stewardess taps at the door the first officer's compliments miss and will you please get up and look out of the scuttle i wrap myself in my kimono treasure trove from japan and thrust head and shoulders through the wide porthole directly before me is kandia abrupt mountains rising sharply from the sea and crowned with snow among them are trailing clouds looping long scarfs of mist from peak to peak at their feet homer's wine-dark sea furrowed by a thousand keels greek galleys roman triremes fighting vessels from carthage merchant and battleships from venice genoa and turkey the fleets of spain men o war with the english lions at the peak and lastly the world's peaceful commerce sailing serenely over the bones and rotting hulls that lie below the sun comes up gloriously out of the sea deepening it to a whiny purple in its light suddenly the mountain tops take fire the snow flushes softly deepens rosily in hue grows crimson with splendor the sleeping mists begin to stir and heave to lighten into gold to float and rise into the warming blue above once more the splendors of a new day such a sunrise as cervantes may have seen as glad greek eyes may have witnessed bowing in prayer to the sun-god as the galley slave may have watched dully as a signal for new labors and admirals gazed upon with tightening lip not knowing whether the new sun should look upon defeat or victory glory or death then the dressing gong clangs noisily through the ship and the colors pale into the common day next morning the sixteenth of january we are fast to the docks at brindisi and but one more stage of the journey remains to be made end of chapter seven recording by holly jensen